Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Come on, show me the magic. Can I take you out to the pictures? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Beatles Films podcast. They said it would never happen. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and we're back each week discussing a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This season, we're kicking things off with 2009's Nowhere Boy, which sees Aaron Taylor-Johnson star as a rebellious teenage John Lennon, confronting the complicated circumstances of his upbringing by reconnecting with his estranged mother, while continuing to live under the guardianship of his disapproving Aunt Mimi. At the same time, Lennon first develops his passion for music, taking up the guitar and starting his first band to begin a journey that ends here with him about to leave for Hamburg. Which technically makes this film a direct prequel to a previous Beatles films podcast movie, Backbeat. But only if you subscribe to the idea that all film biopics are actual instalments in the shared cinematic universe of life. Ed, first question for you. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes it is. (laughs) That's exactly how all biopics work. So, obviously, a central theme of the film is that John's relationship with his mother is a driving force for uh, his creativity, but also, uh, I guess, for his feelings of anger, feelings of resentment and jealousy that that we know come into fruition more as he gets older. Do we think that this is the film presenting that as a sort of faux Freudian idea? Uh, do we think that's true? Uh, what What are your thoughts there? Uh, I think I'm sure there's a broad truth to it, but like everything else, and you know, the entire reason people like us do podcasts about things is um, it probably bears further discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things about John Lennon in particular is. So much, uh, so much motive is sort of attributed to him by people who are like us, who are written by you know, and uh, most reviewers and biographers, who, who are really only making educated guesses. It, it's fairly obvious that the death of his mother had an effect on him, and it had an effect mm-hmm. on his art. That became more obvious in his immediately post Beatles solo work. So, 
you know, there's a hidden message in the uh, in the song "My Mummy's Dead." I found, which I don't know if you spotted. That <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, he was uh, not all that keen on the fact that his mother had died, and um, it, 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 he'd obviously made songs like "Julia" in 1968, mm. and I think getting together with Yoko Ono and and sort of getting getting himself into uh, therapy and thinking about himself in a slightly more self-indulgent, arguably even solipsistic kind of a way, made him think about these things more. And that naturally came out in his art. So yes, I think it is fair to say that these formative experiences had uh, an effect on his art, as I think they would for anyone's, really. I, th- I think that there's, there's, you can almost trace a lot of uh, what we know about John Lennon back to the story that this film tells. So, you know, what you're saying there about John Lennon, his art, the the songs that he would write later on in his career that directly addressed his his mother. But also, this film tells the story that she was one who introduced him to rock and roll in the first place. Mm. And that leads to all of the, the things that set him along that path. The film almost presents this view that his mum is almost responsible for all of those aspects of his career. Yeah. You know, whether it's literal art, the later songs where he's addressing that and his and his the emotions that he is sort of pouring into his music there and he's addressing that uh, in his lyrics. Uh, but right back to the start of the Beatles career, which is, you know, where he first discovered that love for rock and roll music. Yeah, I think... So there's things like this that are alluded to in the anthology and the Beatles story in general. Paul certainly mentions in the anthology of having fond memories of Julia Lennon, Julia Stanley. I'm not sure what her name was at the time, um, but um, Julia, Julia, that'll do. <laughs> um, uh, having fond memories about her being fun and uh, playing the ukulele. He says that thing in. You know, in the anthology about you know, even now when I meet grown-ups who play the ukulele, uh, yeah. I love them, um, <laughs> which is nice. That he, as a man in his fifties or sixties, yeah. <laughs> uses Still the term grown-ups. Like <laughs> uh, but you know, that's by the by. But um, but yeah, certainly uh, she seems to have encouraged that in him, and it's not just this film that demonstrates that. It's sort of fairly well documented uh, that she sort of showed him banjo chords. Um, to begin with, uh, which is sort of what when he met Paul, he was still kind of mm. playing banjo chords, but on a guitar. So yeah, she she certainly seems to have been an influence on him that way. But I don't know. I mean, so one of the things that the film is doing is it, it, like it would would obviously not be right to say that John is a secondary character in it, but I I do think that the relationship and the tension between Julia and her sister Mimi mm. is is one of the main things that's going on in the film. And I suppose the interesting thing to consider if the film is going to frame it in those terms is if he had just been raised by Mimi, he was already sort of he was a rebellious kid, mm. but whether whether that creative spirit would have come out in quite the same way if he'd just been raised by Mimi and not had that sort of brief reconciliation with his mother yeah. before she died. I, I, it's interesting as well because I, I remember, you know, the, the film is very highly regarded. I think by critics, mm. um, I think it's currently sits at eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and I remember when I first saw it when it first came out, uh, I definitely 
felt the same way in in the sense that you know I thought this is not that it bowled me over, but like this is um, a, a film that is worthy of a lot of praise for many reasons. When I was watching it this time round to ready uh, to get ready for this recording, uh, about halfway through, I was just struck by this idea of this is one of those biopics where not much happens there's not much to it you know like sometimes you have those films where um it's choosing to tell a chapter of a famous person's life but actually without a clear story to tell like a a nice way of bookending Mm. um like you know this is the story trying to tell and this is the 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 conclusion of that story because so often with biopics there isn't a conclusion to the story and actually that person goes on to do other things, yeah. which is the case here. And actually it was about halfway through this that I realised that that comes with the relationship between Mimi and Julia. And actually the conclusion comes in that scene right at the end of the film where you see them on deck chairs in her garden mm. having made peace with each other. And, and, and that that's a really nice way. I, even though it, it's a story about John Lennon, it's through them that we get the sort of the traditional narrative arc of a challenge and a resolution yeah which i just thought was quite interesting <laughs> <laughs> because you know it's this that's not how you do expect that that's always to tell and it's, it's quite nice that he was the person that just sort of almost made that happen in a way he has this wonderful speech at the end where he says there's no point in hating someone you love or something which you right. know, when he talks to mimi at the graveyard uh gravestone yeah uh yeah just he has, has this poignant moment it sort of sets his John Lennon up in this film as someone who's almost wise beyond his years a little bit because of what he's had to go through up to that point. Yeah, I th- yeah. So I mean, certainly uh, the film is showing a, a sort of sixteen, seventeen-year-old John who is a remarkable young man. You could very easily make a make a film about a, a teenage John Lennon that showed him as a, sort of a bit of a dosser and a rebel, you know, without a cause, quite literally, <laughs> who actually wasn't really going anywhere. And you know, it turned out he was he he was good at guitar and good at singing, and that kind mm-hmm. of got him out of it. But I like the fact that there's a scene early early on. I think it's it's like the headmaster is, is caught him with porn or something like yes, that. Yeah, and he, you know, and he said, "Have you got anything to say for yourself?" And he says, "I don't suppose there's any chance of getting it back, is there, sir?" Yeah, yeah. And that kind of thing, it's wittier than general teenage surliness yeah. you know he's got he's got a sense of humor he's a witty guy to start off with i like the fact that it's kind of making that clear you know i think the one thing i will say about that moment is that um uh, as always part of my preparation and research my thorough research for these recordings uh is that i go immediately to imdb trivia page yeah where we have lots of unsourced facts that are applied to these films. Yeah. But one thing I'll say about the film is that under the goof section of IMDb, uh, it kind of tickled me a little bit that someone has written this, obviously, in and uh, submitted this as part of the goofs page for this film. In the headmaster's office scene, the boys have apparently been reading Parade magazine. Mm-hmm. Before 1960, Parade was actually titled Blighty Parade. <laughs> Which I liked because I felt like someone was watching that film, saw that error and thought, you know what, I know my porn. <laughs> this needs to be corrected. Like, if, I, if there's one part of this film that I feel like I can be an authority on, it's the porn part of it. Right, so I'm right, going right. to correct that immediately in IMDb. Yeah, yeah, anonymously. Anonymously, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Just yeah. in case. <laughs> but uh, the other part of that bit, though, was you're right in the, the way... Uh, John has these nice sort of pithy, cocky moments in the film. Yeah. 
there are a few moments in the film where what he says feels like there's an applied sense of wisdom or like almost like otherworldliness that's a, uh, that's that's given to the character. Yeah. So in that scene, uh, I think the headmaster says something to him about um, he's going nowhere, um, and he says something like, "Is nowhere full of geniuses? Because if so, that's where I belong." Or so, and that feels like that's that's quite a more complex thought that someone might just have in the moment. Yeah, so, but I, so I suppose what it's doing is that inevitable thing of showing a young version of a person who is very, very familiar to all of us and equating the young version with the person that we know he turned out to be. Yeah, because there is a bit of fan service in the idea of. Uh, showing flashes of the person who we know he would turn out to be. Mm. And actually, I was thinking earlier when, before we started recording, you were talking to me about the poster of this, which is sort of him, Aaron Taylor Johnson, as young John, lying down, looking up at a cloud, Mm -hmm. which is a parody of, it's not the Imagine cover that we know, but maybe it was the sort of alternative version or... Uh, uh, maybe it was on the back of the back sleeve or something like that but there is a picture of John uh, from those Imagine um, Mm. photo sessions where he's sort of looking up at the cloud and so when it does that it is deliberately showing you iconography that you recognise from later Lennon and applying it to earlier Lennon and and uh, thus implying that there is a connection well obviously there's a connection between the person he was and the person he became but um, almost an equation between the two things yeah yeah, and, and, and it, yeah, and there are a few things it does. It does it, uh, however, in I think almost completely without resorting to those. We've talked about them in a few episodes now. Those um, <laughs> those little things where someone says a lyric from a song that they won't write for another seven years, <laughs> yes, or, yeah. or something like yeah, that. I, know you mean, yeah. I, I don't think it's got any of that in it. It doesn't, no. But yeah. I do know we, we did. We certainly had to pick that up before. Like yeah. Backbeat was very guilty of that. Yes, and and, and, you know, and to that point, can I make my uh, very clever observation about the very first scene uh, in the film? I look forward to it. Thank you. So the the film opens with the Hard Day's Night chord. Mm-hmm. Uh, ringing out so not obviously going into the rest of the song but it's just the chord the opening chord and then left to ring out uh, and then we see John running with the sort of distant sounds of what sound like Beatlemania screams and then it cuts to him waking up so it's you know sort of almost like a dream sequence yeah and I, I wrote a review of this film when it first came out in 2009 when I watched it this time around I don't think I really fully understand what I was trying to say, but I I was able to to rediscover the review that I wrote uh, at that time. And past me from 13 years ago was much cleverer than present me now because (laughs) I made a very good point in that review, which is that the the Hard Day's Night chord ringing out at the start emphasises that this is an intro. This is is possibly one of the most famous intros to uh, any pop song written. And actually, that sets the the theme of the substance of, of the film itself, which is this is the intro to John Lennon's life. So just got sort of a neat tie-in there to the Beatles music without actually having to go through any of that pesky copywriting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just an interesting sort of artistic choice to do that. And, and I think a sort of a neat, neat way into find a parallel between the music and what story this film is about to tell at that point yeah it's a nice way of doing it yeah you're right um 
You were clever in 2009, weren't you? Mm. I don't know what happened. No, no, exactly. I wish I'd done a podcast with that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So do I. It's also worth pointing out, actually, that I think there was a lot of expectation. It'd be worth hearing your thoughts on this. There's a lot of expectation that that this film was Sam, who was then Sam Taylor Woods, the the director of this film, her directorial debut. Mm -hmm. But she was known at the time as being an artist, a photography artist that um, was quite, uh, I I guess, like to sort of push the envelope in her work and and, uh, was quite bold and adventurous. Right with her art and I think that there was an expectation at the time this film was released that this might be quite an adventurous take on a Lennon biopic but actually what we get is something that's a little bit more by the numbers Mm. which is absolutely fine obviously I mean I feel like it's interesting when those sort of flourishes come through in the film I think that you know the the Hard Day's Night quarter at the the start is is an instance of that I think the well I think probably one of the, the the more obvious moments in the film is that nice sort of time lapse montage of Lennon learning the banjo and the guitar yeah. um in in real time whilst everyone else else is sort of speeding around him and stuff. Mm. That's in a sort of a nice sort of di- di- directorial flourish. But I think that some of the criticism that was aimed at the film at the time was that people were expecting something a little bit more out there and perhaps a little bit more in keeping with Lennon's later in artistic innovations. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I uh, so at at the time I was aware of Sam Taylor Wood. Mm. Uh, so I, I was aware that she was a photographer and an artist. Was she sort of part of that that whole scene of sort of Tracy Emin and um, and Damien Hirst and people like that? I don't. Maybe I'm conflating scenes or whatever. But I, I want to say yes, just because those are names I recognise from the art world. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I can't be 100% certain that they were part of the same... They would say that they were part of the same scene. Right, okay, yeah. I could have just made up names and you would have had to pretend. No, I knew... Oh, yes, I'm no, familiar with them. Yes, can you imagine, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I wasn't aware that people were... Uh, maybe I was at the time, but certainly watching it now, I wasn't uh, aware that people were kind of expecting anything very different. Uh, but I, I think the interesting thing is that this is a very much a by-the-numbers biopic like reasonably uh, and, yeah. yeah and 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 i guess you know that's that's it but but that's obviously perfectly serviceable right like yeah. that's you know any expectation placed in the film is not a fault of the film itself like yeah. what the 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 what we get is um is is actually a really uh well told and well presented um version of events yeah definitely and, and i wonder whether um so i suppose Maybe there are a couple of things that influenced her decision to approach it in this way. One being, this is my first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it, it's a British film that has got funded, which yes, in, yeah. it, like in that, it certainly back then, still the case now, but certainly back then, um, I think it got some national lottery funding or uh, got some funding from Film Four, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, it was Film Four, yeah. Um, that it, getting a British film funded is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And it is probably... Uh, so I don't think it's a film that... Uh, I would not describe it as a film that plays safe, but I, I will use that phrase to describe... You know, if she had sort of uh, wackier artistic urges that she would naturally have gone down, yeah. I can completely understand her thinking, this is my... Uh, I want to get into filmmaking. Uh, this is the first film I've uh, directed mm. and I've got funding for it. Uh 
it, it you know let let's uh, let's do it properly yes you know, let's yeah, ju- yeah. let's let's make a let's make a kind of standard film um and then i can build on it from there and the second thing is that she was probably pretty acutely aware of the fact that people tend to go off the deep end a bit when you muck around with the beatles story there's a you know a, a subset of that audience who will think of the whole thing as sacrosanct and if you and if you're the person who's been tasked with making what is probably going to be the only biopic about John Lennon at this age mm. that specifically focuses on this year or two of his life that if you go all <laughs> like crazy and you know there's like time lapse pictures of a snail on a leaf for 5 <laughs> minutes or whatever yeah that they're just going to have a go at you for it. That's a specific example from. Uh, we know the art world so well. <laughs> we do, don't we? We do. <laughs> but no, I was. I don't know why I said snail on a leaf because that happens in one of the Terence Malick films. Right. So it's like. Everyone, oh, I know the one you mean. Everyone you picks mean. him up for it. Yeah. Thin Red Line, maybe, or something. No, or, is it Thin Red Line? Or, or no, Tree I was, of Life. Maybe? I was thinking of um, uh, Tree of Life. Tree of Life. I was yeah. thinking of that. I don't know if it is that one. I can't think of the the specific snail you're talking about. A specific but, snail. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure I'd recognise him if I saw him. Sure, sure. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting you said it because you know we we obviously covered in a previous episode uh, across the universe, which mm. is you, you could argue the other approach that could have been taken. Mm. You know with with the Beatles story in that, you know, you have someone who comes from an artistic background and is applying like a, a wild take on, on the subject matter. Yeah. You know, obviously there's distinctly, distinctly different directorial voices, but you could argue that this more sort of, um, reverential approach to the biopic that ends up serving audiences better. Yeah. Certainly one that I think has been better received. Yeah, I would um, say so. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, interesting all the same. And I, I guess moving from Sam Taylor would make, make sense at this juncture to just talk about Aaron Taylor-Johnson generally uh, and his performance. How, yeah. how do you rate him as a John Lennon here? We've, we've also discussed in the past other John Lennons, uh, most notably probably Ian Hart. Yeah. How does he rank on your Lennonometer? <laughs> <laughs> Are we ranking Lennons? Okay. We should. We absolutely should. We should do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's, who's like? It's a... Let's go through them. Who? Uh, who? Who's? Who's on there? So we've got Ian Hart, obviously. Yeah. We have Robert Carlyle from yesterday. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, we have from two of us, Jared Harris. Yes. And from chapter twenty-seven, Mark Lindsay Chapman. Mark Lindsay Chapman. Yeah. Is that all of the ones that we've covered so far? Uh. Yes, I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. Okay, yeah. I may have forgotten one. But also, and then we're adding Aaron Taylor-Johnson to that. So, uh, so I suppose also there's uh, John Lennon, who played John Lennon in the film Help, which we covered at the I mean, last season. I mean, I didn't want to go down that route. <laughs> sure, sure. Where does John Lennon rank on the Lennonometer of people who have played John Lennon? Uh, don't write him, to be honest. <laughs> Overrated. it. <laughs> 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 I've seen better. I've seen much better John Lennon's. Um, yeah, let's leave him out. Let's leave him out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe. Yeah. So, I mean, because it's, it's, you know, Aaron Taylor Johnson had a lot of plaudits at the time of this film. He was um, award nominated, I think, um, it, for, you know, uh, I think it may have even been BAFTA nominated. Yeah. A performance uh, in, in this film. 
So let's let's go through them. Who 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 makes a, a good Lennon uh, of the ones we just listed? Uh, Ian Hart is the obvious one, yeah, because he's done it so many times. It's like Michael Sheen playing Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> so many times, yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, three times, which yeah. I think is the same number of times that Sheen Sheen has blared, and <laughs> <laughs> and um, the uh, uh, so Ian, yeah, Ian Hart is great. As I said. In the backbeat episode, I, I think there is a sort of one notes element to his performance where he plays the sarcasm very well, but perhaps the softer side mm. uh, a, a bit less. But to be fair, maybe those roles didn't give him that that chance quite uh, quite so well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, Mark, <laughs> Mark Lindsay Chapman. Um, uh, it, it, in terms of uh, standing around giving an autograph and then saying, "Is that all you want?" Can't fault him. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- d- difficult to see how anyone could have done it better. Ian Hart wishes he had that kind of material to work with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, Hart cries himself to sleep every night watching that performance. You know, um, and uh, Jared Harris. Jared Harris, very, uh, accent not flawless, but I think he got elements of his character very well. Mm-hmm. Who else was there? And Robert Carlyle. Robert Carlyle. Obviously as, a, as an alternate Lennon. Well, I mean, Robert Carlyle has has to get extra credit for the fact that, as evidenced by our yesterday episode, I didn't actually realise it was him until you told me. Well, I mean, that's that's um, only him getting extra credit if you thought it was the actual real-life Don Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, no, true. <laughs> Rerasing his acting capabilities here, if you believe John Lennon was actually in that film, yeah. then he definitely deserves that credit. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think, like, Aaron Taylor-Johnson... He does a fantastic job in this. Yeah. And the interesting thing about, like I say, he play he plays John as a, as a kid with a lot of wits. The really interesting thing about the way he plays John is that he plays him as a sort of genuine tough guy, and that really really interested me. You hear a lot of sort of Paul describing how he sort of alludes to the fact that actually before he met John at the the Wilton Village fate. He'd seen him around a little bit, and he just thought he was a, he was a teddy boy, and he was a tough guy, and he sort of kept up. He, he could tell that like, maybe this was a guy who'd kind of want to keep out of his way a little bit. Mm. And people do uh, talk about John, like you know, getting into fights quite a lot and being physically intimidating, you know. And you can imagine him definitely being like the leader of his gang or peer group, yeah. And not just because he had a cutting wit, but also because. Physically, he was quite imposing in a way. Aaron Taylor Johnson does that really, really well. There are scenes when he's just—he's just sort of like wearing a vest, and he's sort of, um, and he's sort of pr- pretty well built, and he looks yeah. kind of imposing, and he's sort of just wearing a vest and putting braces on over the top of it, like he's sort of, uh, you know, that scene in The Godfather where they're all hanging around wearing vests, <laughs> like James Caan, yeah, you know, yeah. and like you know, with braces over the top of it, and like sort of smoking cigarettes and stuff like that. You know, and, and I think it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's a side we haven't seen, but uh, because it's it, well documented, uh, the, the kind of guy John was at that time. But I think you contrast that with the way Ian Hart plays him in, so Backbeat in particular, where there are, there are scenes where he's getting into fights and you kind of get the impression from Ian Hart's performance that John was the kind of guy who was very mouthy and would sound off a lot and end up in fights mm. and generally lose them. 
um, or you know, just not not quite have not quite be able to back up the the mouth. Yeah, yeah. Aaron Taylor Johnson just seems to be a kind of tougher version of him. Tougher, know? tougher version, but also I I think the interesting thing for me there is that um, he does a really good job of of portraying that tough guyness at the age that Lennon is in this film, which is I think fifteen. Yeah. Uh, is it 15? No, it's 17, it, it, isn't it? So 17 is the birthday he has in yes. the film. Yeah, so sorry, 16 sorry, 17, 17, yeah, 17 yeah. yeah, that's right. And it's actually when he meets Paul that Paul says he's 15, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So he's 16, 17 in this film. Because I get the impression throughout the film that this tough guy persona that he has is kind of him acting up. Like he's acting the tough guy. Yeah. I, I, I get the sense from that film that we see John Lennon acting the tough guy as opposed to him being a tough guy okay yeah um and i think that one of the ways that that film delivers that that nuance is by us also seeing him still being young enough to to be a boy in a lot of ways yeah. you know he's still very very sensitive he's sensitive to um the uh the sort of complex emotions he feels towards his his mother but also things like um one of the scenes that really struck me actually was when mimi sells his guitar yeah, and he and he swears at her, and like he really like acts out in quite a sort of tantrum style rage. Yes, um, yes, yeah. um, and 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 it and it makes Mimi not sort of sit up and take notice of it because she's like she didn't realize it. It would, it would invoke that kind of reaction from him. Yeah, but yeah, you're you're bal- you know when you balance the the two, like you you get this, I guess, dichotomy of any kind of adolescent growing up between transitioning from a sort of a young boy under his parents' wing to becoming his own sort of fully-fledged young adult. Um, and sometimes it's play-acting a little bit. You know, that's that's where his, his cockiness comes from sometimes. It's not necessarily him being a tough guy and knowing he can win every fight. It's him pretending to be one so he can look like one. Yeah, true. Uh, and also... Um... How accurate it is in terms of his circle of friends, but certainly the friends he has chosen, the, the, who he forms the quarrymen with, mm. the, like friends like Pete Shotton, um, they're all people he can dominate. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like so. He, so he's one of the because like you'll remember kids like that from school who would sort of choose a circle of friends who were all people they uh, they could uh, where they knew they could be in charge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and actually, like you know, there were probably kids in school that, that they themselves were a bit scared of. Uh, but like, I'm in charge of of this little, uh, yeah, this this yeah, little, yeah, 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 group, yeah. So we're on board with Aaron Taylor Johnson as as Lennon in this. Mm. Um, arguably, although we haven't settled on this yet, he might even top the Lennonometer. Yeah. Um, but the performances in this film are, across the board are amazing, right? Yeah. All of them are incredible. Yeah. We can go on to each of them in turn. Uh, maybe we should cover off um, some of them quickly, quick thoughts. Anne-Marie Duff as Julia, his mum, I think has some incredible scenes. Yeah. Here. There were some moments where as the as the, as the the flighty, flirtatious mother, that, that's one element of her character, but it's the moments when Lennon deliberately cuts her down and you see like some sort of she kind of deflates yeah yeah yeah, that kind of stuff it's really really well played Mm. and in particular that that moment where um we can talk about Kristen scott thomas as as mimi next but that moment where they meet in the cafe towards the end of the film and and she says to julia um i do love you you know 
and there's this, it's just this the reaction is just like basically lip wobbling you know you can really mm. see her sort of trying to sort of maintain a composure and stuff and, and but but the impact of what that means to her hearing that is is really important she plays that incredibly well yeah i think so i, I think certainly it's a very difficult role to play mm. because on the surface of it it's if this is a character you're tasked with playing it you can look at it and think oh it's it's like a good time girl yeah fine easy you know and uh, and just sort of play it on that level I mean, she does that very easily, but the the other uh, layers she brings to it mm. are, are, are really remarkable. Um, the thing the thing that I'm never sure about is it, it is implied in this that she has something like bipolar disorder, yeah, or, or something along those lines, because it's sort of uh, I think in the sort of big argument at the end. Where Mimi says, you know, she like she she likes company. You know what that means, don't yes. you? And 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 I think, or or maybe it's in the argument with John outside the house just before that. I forget, but it's um where she says, I get I get ill, John. You know that, you know, like mm. and, and um it, it's worse to that effect. I forget, and and certainly her husband seems uh to be. Like tolerant of the fact that she has um, perhaps they're not quite manic episodes, but certainly periods when she is up and she is, you know, dancing and she's everyone's friend and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and and you don't quite see the down parts, uh, but you get the impression that in the bits that are described to you, uh, like when the the uh, the scene when. Freddie Lennon kidnapped John and took him to Blackpool mm. that is sort of semi-depicted near the end, that that is a point when she was in a down period, you know, and that is all hinted at. And even the, the when she's up, I feel like she plays that with a level of franticness Yeah, um, that implies that she's forcing herself to keep going. Like she's, she's forcing herself to, um, to keep spirits up because she doesn't want to let the energy levels down because she because you know because uh, she doesn't know what will happen then right it's almost like yeah. she's, she's sort of there's there's like um, an impulsiveness to uh, to making sure that everyone is having a good time so that she can have a good time yeah you you just feel her in those scenes sort of willing the the, the celebrations to happen so that she doesn't have to deal with the alternative. Yeah, and I, I think there's also a, a part of the way she plays it that makes you uh, sympathise with Mimi a bit. Yeah, because she, uh, Julie, if if you look at it from Mimi's point of view, uh, Julie has sort of done none of the hard work of raising this boy, and now he's a teenager and he has a rebellious instinct. He wants to go and hang out with uh, this mother who's a bit more like a fun older sister. Um, and you know, and she just gets all the fun stuff, the parties and the drinking yeah. and the rock and roll and stuff like that. And, yeah, and, and, and has had to put you know. And I think um, the way that Anne Marie Duff plays her, it does make you slightly unsympathetic to her because of that. You know, you you, you are thinking because there is also a big part of you that is thinking you've just breezed back into this boy's life. And uh, and you're screwing him up as you have done, you know, already more than once during his life. Yeah, y- you can kind of see that 
she's enjoying she's really really enjoying the fact that she has this um connection with her son again but actually she's not really thinking about the uh the emotional toll that this might be taking on him yeah exactly yeah yeah um and, and talking about mimi kristen scott thomas yeah i i, I think uh, I, I was thinking about this when watching it and I, I sort of came to the conclusion that I think probably the best ever casting of any character in any Beatles film and performance to go along with it is Kristen Scott wow, Thomas's Art Mimi. She is wow. unbelievably good. In wow. This. She is so brilliant. Yeah. I, I just... Uh, th- there is... We need to start a Mimiometer. <laughs> we do. <laughs> There's, um, I, I really feel like because Aunt Mimi, in terms of a character in the Beatles story and what we know of her, what do you think of when you think of her? She was quite stern, and she was uh, quite posh, and maybe had uh, or, or or wanted to appear posher than she was. Hmm. That kind of mm-hmm. thing. Even that second one is is probably an interpretation you would really only get from uh, do, doing a bit more digging and background reading than most people would bother with. Generally speaking, what you think of when you think of Aunt Mimi is like John Lennon was raised by an aunt who was quite strict. Mm-hmm. That's me, and and you, you could be forgiven as Kristen Scott Thomas for just doing that, just being a strict aunt who plays against. Uh, you know, the, the conflict in this film is that all of a sudden, this much more flighty mother has come along. He's, you know, they're back in each other's life, and that's the conflict. Strict Mimi against fun Julia, you know, mm-hmm. go. And what Kristen Scott Thomas does is she, there is so much, there is so much sort of caring and affection for John just beneath the surface yeah. of her sort of propriety, you know. And, it, and even her accent, which is so perfect, is just... There's scouse in it, but it's also a scouse that she is obviously trying to hide yeah, a little yeah. bit. That's amazing, yeah. You know, and and that is, is to attempt and achieve that is really really remarkable. I think. I think. I think. Yeah. Any kind of you know those, those roles kind of pop up, don't they? Every now and then, where you have someone who is always trying to maintain composure and and um, contain this uh, or, or uh, maintain this outlook of being like prim and proper yeah whilst hiding um sort of a sense of vulnerability uh, underneath but yeah. you're right i mean that that comes through and that she's yeah she's incredible yeah. in this and think about that scene when they go to the music shop to buy the guitar yeah and um and the guitar is something that she's sort of discouraged in him or you know she is sort of seen to have discouraged and you know she in real life apparently you know said the famous line guitars all right for a hobby John but it's not going to earn you any money mm. that's you know that's always harked back to um, in this film um, it, it's Mimi who buys John his first guitar mm. <laughs> they they go to the guitar shop and uh, you you're, at this point they kind of seem at, at loggerheads with each other uh, but then they sort of uh, bond in the face of this common enemy which is this guy. He was just sort of doing his job, selling him a guitar. <laughs> yeah, and and they, you see that they actually share a nice little sense of humour. Like yeah. you know, oh, it doesn't sound like a very good deal, does it, John? No, it certainly doesn't. Mean you know, they're they're, yeah. they're they're riffing off each other in a way that you can tell. The really nice thing about her is you can tell that she finds him really funny. Mm. She she is actually really delighted by the fact that he is witty. 
yeah. and slightly cheeky. She likes that about him. It, it's not that she wants to uh, smooth off all his harder edges. Yeah. She actually kind of likes that, and she likes the sort of creative side of him as well. And um, she is just trying to make sure that he doesn't go off the rails completely. Yes. Yeah. Because the, in and in fairness to her, there was a, definitely a danger that that would have happened. I mean, to be in fairness to her, there's it did happen <laughs> several <laughs> times over. You know, yeah, yeah, eventually. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And one final performance to touch on, Thomas Brodie Sangster as Paul. Yeah. Uh, how do we rate him on the Paulometer, the McCartneyometer? Um, the McCometer. <laughs> <laughs> who who we rate? No, you know what? I'm not going through all the pools. No. <laughs> um, he's very strange casting, and and I tell you why. It, 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 so, so the main thing is uh, there there aren't a lot of films in which. Uh, an actor plays Paul, mm. right? So, it, like, mm. it does happen. They don't take other than two of us. Two of us, the only film I can think of in which somebody plays Paul McCartney as a like a lead role. So, yeah, in, in Backbeat, he is not. He's, he's you know he, he he's in it, but he's nothing like a lead role. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He, George, and Pete are kind of like uh, side characters, really. So, uh, nobody really thinks. Oh, uh, you know that guy played Paul McCartney really well. You don't get a lot of that, but what does so? What does always happen because uh, he tends to be a bit of a side character. They tend to cast people who look like him, mm. who at least have that kind of slightly doe-eyed thing going on. Um, and Thomas Brody Sangster does not look like Paul McCartney no. at all. And he also looks considerably younger than yeah. Taylor Johnson. Like they, I, I realise, you know, they, they are probably age appropriate. Well, I guess they're age appropriate casting. The, the age gap between the two seems bigger than it is in real life. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, and, and and that actually contributes to a sense that I I don't really get the sense of their bond being formed particularly. There's a scene at the end where they hug. Um, yeah, well, I, I think it's when they are seen to be bonding over the fact that their mothers are both recently dead. Mm. And I I didn't feel like it had earned that scene particularly because I did other than them playing guitar together, I didn't really get the sense that they were kindred spirits. Yeah, know? I do know what you mean. I, I and I feel like there there are some nice moments in the film where you get the impression that Lennon is feeling him out a little bit. Like he's trying to get a sense of him as a character. He's, mm. you know, and and when Paul says that his mum had died here before, that's that sort of takes John back and sort of sees him in a new light. Yeah, kind of thing. there's also a really nice moment in that exact same scene as well, where um, Lennon asks him, you know, he doesn't seem like the sorts to get into rock and roll, and his reply is that it's just about the music. It's all music, simple. Which I just thought was a really nice like way to summarize Paul generally. Because I think you know what we know of him now, in in the sense that he's had such an eclectic output in his career yeah, yeah, yeah. that actually that rings true. Like his roots may have been in rock and roll music, but actually it's always just about the the music, regardless of where it comes from. Um, yeah, and that was uh, that, I thought that was a nice way of sort of giving a nice, neat summary of his character and how it contrasts to John, which is much more about the emotion that he builds and, and, and how he sort of puts that out into uh, an output through music. Right, okay, yeah. How he expresses it. How he expresses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think because the, the, they're doing a similar thing there with sort of 
uh, harking forward to the person we know he will be. Yes. Because actually, I'm sure Paul would not have expressed it in that way at that time. But certainly it is true that he had already been exposed to influences of like his dad's, yeah. you know, jazz jazz records and, and classical and all that kind of stuff in a way that uh, John had was sort of less interested in music in that way. It was really just rock and roll that sparked his interest. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but no, I, th- I mean Thomas Brody saying that it, it's odd because so he's one of those actors who suffers from and and maybe this is just in my eyes he suffers from being the kid in love actually <laughs> and 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 it being impossible to think of him as anything other than eleven years old and also still looking like he's eleven years yeah, old despite yeah. being like you know eighty or however <laughs> however old he is now the literal age of Paul McCartney <laughs> yeah. but um yeah i you know even when he showed up in the, what was the chess thing that everyone watched in Netflix Queen's Gambit yes that's right um, yeah. uh like he showed up in that like playing like a really cocky chess genius character and yeah, I just right. kind of couldn't quite buy it, you know. And and, and I hear what you're saying because I, I do think there's a. There's I don't an think he's a bad actor at all. But but, but I think that's know. it because I do think he's a really good actor. Yeah. And I, and I think that what he because I I don't I I'd have to look up film dates, but in my mind, his role in this film isn't actually much later than his role in Love Actually, and, and I can't think of what he would have done in between those two films. Yeah, I'm sure. This 2009 Love Actually is. 2002 or three, something like that, perhaps, I think. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, we're, probably looking scene... at, we're probably looking at six, seven years difference, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm sure he'd been in, in other stuff before then and, and probably really obvious stuff that I'm just forgetting right now. But but I, I do think that he brings a lot to both those roles, like even Love Actually. Like, not, I know this isn't a Love Actually, this isn't a, um, a Richard Curtis podcast, but like yeah. other than yesterday. But, but you know, he, he's a very, very good actor. I think you're right in the fact that he just suffers from extremely youthful looks, which yeah. I think means that we all remember him from those sort of that, that older role. Yeah, but I th- I think he 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 does a really good job of playing Paul here, and I think he does, what I like about his Paul in this film is that he doesn't get intimidated by John's posturing. Yeah, you know, like when they first meet each other and he starts playing, and, and he kind of sees through that sort of intimidation technique that John's trying to put on him. Um, and yeah. he doesn't sort of stand for it. Well, as in he doesn't, he doesn't react, but he just sort of doesn't fall, get intimidated by it. And, and I kind of feel like that's an again a nice leeway into how Lennon very quickly establishes some respect for him. Yeah, he see you know as I say, he seems to have chosen a circle of friends that he can dominate. Yeah, and then someone comes along who is. A, 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 frankly a better musician than him and he knows it yeah and also someone who has his own self-confidence and will kind of stand up to him a bit yeah and i suppose he has to make a decision at that point of like do i want this guy in the group which will threaten my dominance of it or do i want it to be a better group with this guy in it you yeah, know? yeah and yeah. you know i think um probably made the right choice ultimately yeah. <laughs> possibly <laughs> yeah. who's to say yeah. only time will tell <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, and, and like a similar point about that is uh, even though he is not a major character at all, uh, George in this, mm. um, it is interesting how uh, he meets John and is similarly not intimidated by him. Whereas actually, I think in real life, I get the impression he was a bit more cowed by John being a fair bit older than him. Yes. And sort of much more dominant. Yeah, that's interesting. Because that was my understanding as well. And I, I thought that scene played out differently to how I would have imagined. He's being quite witty. He makes a joke about, oh, yeah, I didn't bring my top hat with me or something like that. Yeah. Um, but what actually one thing I really enjoyed, uh, seeing an actual film's depiction of the, the raunchy on the top deck of a bus anecdote. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Go on, George, get your guitar out, play raunchy. Yes. You know, raunchy, note perfect, you're in. Because you know? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. the way McCartney tells that in the anthology, I have such a clear mental image of, <laughs> of that scene. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that you see it filmed and you realise that actually you, you already had a mental picture and it's yeah. pretty much exactly like it is filmed. Yeah. yeah. You know, it would, and so it's really nice just to see that brought to life in a way. You know? And, uh, but, you know, that's a, an interesting part about uh, all this as well is we've spoken before. Uh, on on this podcast many times about how historical accuracy isn't necessary in order to tell a good story Mm -hmm. but it feels worth touching upon uh, where in this film it seems to take license a little bit so one the thing for me is you know and I, I, I did sample across this when I was researching the film one of the things for me that really stood out was John punching Paul McCartney at his mum's funeral. Now, yeah. that feels like a big moment in, in both their lives. Right. Did it happen? The answer is no. Uh, because, yeah. I, I know this, because uh, it turns out that um, uh, Sam Taylorwood um, ha- has talked about showing a screening of this film to Paul McCartney and, and talking to him about some of the uh, inaccuracies in the film, some of which uh, include uh, the fact that Mimi wasn't as mean as she is portrayed in the film. Yeah. Um, Paul and Yoko apparently were very keen, saw early screenings and were very keen to make that point. Yeah. That Mimi yeah. wasn't that strict. Yeah. And, and also, uh, there was also something about how Lennon didn't, never sat at the top deck of the bus or something. Oh, really? I could be, yeah, I could be wrong. There was something like that anyway. But it was interesting to me that there were, and also obviously McCartney being punched at the funeral didn't happen. And that, um, from by all accounts, it sounds like Sam Taylor would had to explain to McCartney that she felt it was more important to tell a film than to tell a documentary. Yeah. So they had to come to a consensus to like reach a compromise around you know um, whether or not this made better sense to serve as a story than it did uh, in real life. Okay. And it, which is you know which is the point that we always make on, on his films. Yeah. It does the, the the funeral thing did actually sort of stick out to me though because I, I just feel like that's that's particular license um there that's been taken because it feels like a big moment for both those characters and when you're dealing with with two people who are so famous who have such a history and a well-known history um it feels weird to sort of invent a moment between them yeah it does and and i think also maybe the bits 
at the so it, it, before the funeral so it's John's birthday party where like yeah uh, what's the song that is the uh, song that like Paul is like quietly playing to Julia yes in the kitchen it's the one that Stuart Sutcliffe sings in Backbeat what's the case the Elvis one Love uh, Me Tender yes Love Me Tender I think that's it and she says oh that's for your mum wasn't it you know mm. and uh, and that is like it, it, from a narrative point of view that's there so that John can become more resentful at the idea that his mother is uh, like it, it gets the impression it's not him who's special it's just that she enjoys being around yeah but it, it, like, like young people in general it just yeah. sort of you know she it just enjoys that um yeah and so he gets a bit jealous about that I mean whether that happened at all like Paul Paul certainly talks about having met Julia as we said earlier with the ukulele thing and all the rest mm. of it you know and has fond memories of her but I, I mean wh- whether you know I, I I get the impression that is kind of artistic license as well the way that's been portrayed so here's another interesting point for you yeah. um, uh, on the same note I have a question in the words of comedian Bill Hicks I have a question for you it's a one word question yeah you ready <laughs> okay incest right <laughs> Now, uh, for or against? <laughs> <laughs> now, we should touch on this because I think that this was a um, some controversy surrounding the film at the time was that there is uh, that the Julia's flirtatious nature crossed lines or crosses lines, I should say, in this film. Crossed lines makes it sound like it happened in real life. In the film, it certainly seems to cross lines in the. In, invokes sort of confused feelings in John uh, with yeah. how she behaves around him. Yeah. I think it's probably the, the most diplomatic or fairest way of, of putting it. Yeah. Thoughts on whether we feel like that, is there's truth to that part of the story at all? Yeah, I, it, it, it's tricky to know. Cinema actually does not necessarily have a a, a good visual shorthand that can be displayed in a montage or something of a man and a woman getting to know each other and enjoying each other's company. Uh, it doesn't have a better shorthand for that than the, at least the kind of semiotics of a romantic relationship. don't know whether I've explained that very well, but... Did you, you haven't. Okay. <laughs> okay. Was it was it semiotics? <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I was up, at, up, up with you up until that point. Fine. I, um, I, I I think what did, did you ever see a film called? It's it's either People Like Us or People Like Us. It's uh, oh okay yes yeah, Chris Pine yeah, yeah, Elizabeth yeah. Banks yeah yeah yeah. So of I course. think he is like it's he's like yes. her long lost brother. I remember. And yeah. he turns up in her life and he doesn't tell her, and they kind of get to know each other. And the way that they get to know each other, uh, it, it, there's a sort of montage of like. Uh, you know, they, they sort of, they, you know, I'm, I can't remember it that well, but let's say, uh, you know, riding horses down the beach together yeah, and going yeah. on the dodgems together and like, like you know. Enjoying an ice cream and stroll on the beach promenade. And that kind stuff. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they're brother and sister, but um, the, the, the film needs to show you in a quick and easy way that these are two people who are getting to know each other and are enjoying each other's company. It's mm. not trying to show you anything romantic, yeah. but it doesn't really have any way, any other shorthand for that than the than the the general visual grammar of uh, how men and women 
it, it uh, are usually shown to be getting to know each other, which yes. is through the romantic comedy or the romantic film. Sure, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's what's what yeah. happening there. Now, that's obviously not exactly what's happening here. Um, no, but I, feel, it, I feel like this is much more over in, in it, this film. Than it, it, is, is. it is much more over. But, but if, if you think about, um, we were talking about uh, this this sort of brief point in John's life where Julia came back into his life and he re-established a relationship with her before mm. she before she was killed. Um, if you uh, if as a filmmaker you are trying to show that this uh, had an effect on him, uh, and particularly with the fact that she, um, which seems to be true in real life that she um it, it, it you know it was fun enjoyed dancing was quite quite flirty that kind of thing it and and what you need to show the viewer is how intoxicated john was by this mm. uh, that's probably the way to do it so what you're what you're saying is the 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 uh visual grammar as you say in portraying that happening yeah. uh is can easily be misconstrued as something that is more romantic or has has more sexuality to it, just because of the nature in which it's being portrayed through film. Well, uh, I, I, yes, I do think that's the case. That isn't necessarily what's going on here. I mean, okay. t- I, I, it, it, the, the fact that it looks like there is, a, 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 you know, a, there is a hint of incest. Going a hint of incest. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! One of my favorite, my favorite Agatha Christie novels, a hint of incest. <laughs> uh, on yeah. ICV. Moving on. Um, the, the 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 reason that it seems uh, like there's a hint of incest there is uh, because it's because there is. It's not. It, it's not. I'm not yes. saying that um, it's just our interpretation. It, it's in the film. Yes. For sure. Yeah. And. And so it, it, and so you have to think. Well, what is the justification for this? Because it's quite a big deal. It's mm. not like, it's not like Sam Taylor Wood is, is flat out coming out and say, "Oh, yeah, there was definite sort Sean of." Sean fancied his mum. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but for her to at least hint at it, you know, she needs some basis for it. So, like, I went and and looked for what evidence she could have taken from this. Uh-huh. And so, what I came uh, across. Uh, it was Philip Norman's book, John Lennon, The Life, which came out in 2008, which was the year before this film, probably a bit too late for it to actually influence this. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sure this quote would have been available before it was published in this book. Um, so there was, um, it writes a little bit about um, John became becoming aware of a sort of sexual atmosphere between his mother and uh, Twitchy, uh, Dykins at the at the house. Twitchy Dykins played by uh, David Morrissey in the film, mm. um, and uh, he, he and it says uh, he also became increasingly conscious of Julia's physical allure. The more so as she had always treated him in a jokey, flirtatious manner, manner more like a sportive young aunt. Sportive's a good word. Like Sportive is a great word. Yeah, and um, there's, there's lots of layered meanings in that word. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the, uh, the the short passage here. Um, says one afternoon when he was playing truant from quarry bank as usual he lay on her bed next to her as she took an afternoon rest 
He never forgot what she was wearing. Quote, a black angora, short-sleeved, round-necked sweater, not too fluffy. Maybe it was that other stuff. Cashmere. Soft wool, anyway. And, I believe, that tight, dark green and yellow mottled skirt. End quote. As they lay there, he accidentally touched Julia's breast. Quote, and I was wondering if I should do anything else. It was a strange moment, because at the time I had the hots, as they say, for a rather lower-class female who lived on the opposite side of the road. I always think I should have done it. Presumably, she would have allowed it. End quote. So, right. the word presumably is, re- is really interesting there. Yes. Yes. Um, to, I mean, so John Lennon was a, a screwed-up guy, right? And, and the idea that there is a, a sort of psychosexual element uh, to him as far as his relationship with his mother goes, you, you can't view it with any great surprise, especially, because, you know, the fact that he used to call Yoko Ono mother. Mm. You know, he was, he was not, not, he didn't hide particularly the fact that he saw Yoko as a mother substitute in some mm. way. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and let, let, you know, let's take that into account as well. He yeah. was obviously known for constantly being provocative in, yeah. in what he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interviews and stuff. Yeah, he was quite open about stuff like this. Yeah, it's not a lot to base as much on as this film does. Mm-hmm. Is what I will say. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it is certainly artistic license that Nowhere Boy is taking, but if you think about the way it portrays it, there is a scene in which he lies down on a sofa with her, and you can see yeah. he feels slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, which actually was brought to mind as you read that. Oh, yeah, you know that that feels like it was a yeah. influence almost by that same quote. Yeah. Um, other than that, are there bits in the film where it's anything like as overt as that? And I'm not sure. I think it's quite subtle in general. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Definitely. I think it, I think it's through you know there there is it's through her flirtatious manner yeah you know it is is how she behaves around him and then I think it's reinforced later on when you can see uh, him having pangs of jealousy which could and should be interpreted as more about his mum giving attention to other guys rather than sexual attention yes but because the film has done the groundwork already in in offering up this idea it sort of works in both ways later on in the film when, yeah. when those sort of jealous feelings come through yeah um yeah interesting it's, it's an interesting size of that film like, and i think that it's um i could say potentially i think it was at the time kind of controversial to to portray it in that way but yeah yeah like i mean like you've like you've given perhaps there was there was truth in it well yeah uh, but also as we said earlier um this was shown in advance to Paul and Yoko. Yeah. And they were, well, who knows? Um, they certainly had an influence over how the film did turn out mm. because they had, as I said, particular strong thoughts about Aunt Mimi not being as strict as she was shown. And I think it was then re-edited to make uh, Mimi a bit softer or to show, you know, to highlight the, the softer side of her a bit more. Who who knows? I mean, mate, it, it it's really hard to know whether they would have seen scenes like that and thought, um, 
oh, it's rubbish. John didn't fancy his mum. Like, mm-hmm. why have you put that in there? You know, as you said earlier, Sam Taylor Wood seems perfectly comfortable to argue her corner against Paul McCartney of all people. Yeah. You know, about like, yes, I know he didn't punch you at his mum's funeral, but, you know, artistic license for this reason, you know, is, is justified. And presumably she would have been, she must have felt strongly that she wanted this to be in there. Hmm. Uh, in order to argue that case, if she had to argue that case, yeah. But I, but I presume it would have come up if you asked, you know, the guy's childhood friend and his ex-wife, uh, his, uh, um, his his widow rather. That, you know, would you like to see this film? It strongly implies that he had sexual feelings for his mother. Mm. They're probably going to mention it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also to take it one step further, not only did uh, that discussion take place, but Yoko Ono, uh, upon seeing this film, then gave the rights for that film to use Mother. Yeah. Uh, which plays over the end credits. Yeah. So not only was it a sort of a case of convincing her that this was acceptable, I think Yoko was fully on board with the film in general in order to allow it the use of that song. Yeah. Uh, and what a song. You know, a song that essentially reinforces this, this whole... Um, Conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, mother, you had me, but I never had you. It's pretty on the nose, as it were, in terms of that theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on from the icky subject of incest. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the last thing I guess I wanted to chat to you about was just, you know, touching on mother, the use of music in general. One of the things that I hadn't appreciated when I first saw this film 13 years ago, but obviously now um, much more sort of uh, well-versed in Beetledom was the use of Maggie May in the in, in the film, which mm. was nice to see uh, yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, again, a, a relatively, uh, not even relatively, but actual factual inaccuracy in that the film portrays the Quarrymen playing that song when, Beatles, uh, when Paul McCartney sees them for the first time. And um, that apparently wasn't the case. It was a different song. Oh, is it? Okay. But um, this was... idea that it being like, um, you know, obviously I know Maggie May is a traditional Liverpool folk song and mm. the idea that this was taught to John by his mum and that they ended up taking that through to sort of Quarrymen performance uh, was quite a nice, neat touch, actually, and a nice way to, to tie into sort of later Beatles music catalogue without actually having to deal with that pesky copywriting again. Oh, right. I see. So, yeah, because I, I, I wasn't sure what you meant, but um, yeah, so... So the thing where, when Paul actually came and saw him, like the yes. way he described it, he was playing the Del Viking song, Come and Go With Me. That's get, right, yes. Making up his own words. But in the film, thing. they're playing Maggie May. Right, okay, with you. But yeah, uh, to sort of tie it to the, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it makes sense. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, that's a, it's a nice little link. I, I think I the performance of In Spite of All the Danger at the end, Yes. Uh, the musical performance of it, and also the way it's shot with John, sing, or Aaron Taylor Johnson rather, singing it very, very passionately. Yeah, it's fantastic, and yeah. I, I'm I'm always struck by that song, how sophisticated it is. Yeah, I was listening to it a lot for uh, today. On, on always listening to this. Yeah, yeah. for for a bunch of sixteen, seventeen year olds, yeah. especially like. like George's little vocal, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, is like wow. The fact that they came up with that 
um, at that age. It it is cause it, it's hard to know whether like you listen to that now and it's like well this is early Beatles so mm. you know it so- sounds better than anything anyone else was doing at that time, or or whether it it genuinely was a cut above everything else because they were special even then, or or it's just because of the fact that you know it, there were a million other recordings like this of, of groups in Liverpool, it's just that we've never heard them, mm. which were equally good. Who knows? But... And, and also because Paul always has always gone on record and saying that they got by by stealing from other artists, right? And yeah. I think I listen to In Spite of All Danger and think that is a fantastic, uh, fantastically sophisticated song for them for their age. Mm. How much of that was originality and inventiveness on their part and how much it, was it them copying similar chord changes and breakdowns from other songs that they'd been learning to play at that time. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't know the answer to that because uh, it sounds like a song of that time. Yeah. And it's difficult to, to determine uh, now whether it was different uh, enough to to show their sort of music or their songwriting talent that, that, you know. Oh, I think it is. I mean, it sounds, you know, it sounds quite sort of Buddy Holly-ish, I suppose. Yeah. But I would struggle to think of any specific Buddy Holly song that it has uh, that it has it has stolen lines or even chords from. Mm. Because because uh, I know what you mean. It, 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 there is a there is a thing. Uh, there's a at that uh, it changes yeah. uh, into a seventh. The you know chord changes to a seventh, which mm. is yes, a thing a thing that like anyone is um, anyone who's learning guitar is sort of blue, bluesy guitar is like you know that's you're very familiar with a chord change like that but all that really is is kids who have been listening to rock and roll and blues and understand that that is a thing that happens in it yes so i think uh, i don't yeah i i really like the use of the song in the film i think that it was um it's a nice way to add an extra layer of meaning to that song which i i i wouldn't i wouldn't have said previously it was possible to do yeah you know, um, but having this sort of tragic layer added to the song was a really, really nice touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If only it wasn't for Paul McCartney uh, upon his screening with Sam Taylor Woods, her and say, "That's not what the song was about." Um, and and for, is that right? Yes, exactly right. And um, <laughs> for for her to have to explain to him, it is a film, not a documentary. <laughs> Give me this one, please. You know. <laughs> So yeah, so you got argued down that one. I think it's a really nice touch in the film, especially now that we know that song so well. I mean, presumably at the time when the film was released as well, we knew it from an anthology. But yeah. Because we know that song so well now, it's it's nice to sort of have an extra layer added to it through the context of this film. Yeah, yeah. I have discussed everything that I have to discuss about Nowhere Boy. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think that is probably broadly it. We um we talked about the incest, right? That's in there, right? I mean, we could go over it again if you really want to. <laughs> I know, I know, this is why you're in it. No, I think it's fine. Okay, um, cool. I think I, I'm, I'm all incest. And you just about. looked at your notes, and there's just lots. It's the word incest repeated lots, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. lots of times in, in capital list. letters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe some drawings or two. So, um, <laughs> if you have enjoyed uh, listening to this podcast, even some of the seizure elements uh, of our discussions. Please feel free to give us a like and a review on your podcast listening platforms. Elsewhere, you could find us on the usual social media places at Beatles Films Pod. And otherwise, we'll see you next week uh, for another episode. Thank you for listening.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye.